rocking and rolling, rocking and rolling in the free world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this absolutely stunningly beautiful, gorgeous Tuesday afternoon? I am really well. It's Day of the Dead. I, uh, I made a Day of the Dead mask, which was really cool, and I'm going to be participating in a live music event playing some uh, percussion instrument. Uh, it's with some really cool marimba players uh, at the one of the Hispanic cultural centers. Uh, so they'll be really good, but I, I get to, uh, to play along. But uh, I did have a real moment last night, if I could just share. It's a sort of Jungian synchronicity, <laughs> dream logic, uh, and it's about piracy, which we're, we're going to get to. Um, All right. One of the really important writers in this whole game is Raphael Sabatini, uh, who's a great adventure writer. He wrote Scaramouche, Captain Blood. Uh, can you imagine for a moment what it would have been like to be there opening night of Captain Blood with Errol Flynn in a small Kansas town? You know, I don't think I can imagine that, actually. I think that's too... I, I, we're, we've had too much entertainment to go back to that point. And I wonder about our ability to think about 400 years ago with, as these revised historians of today, these woke folks think they can. But anyway, I decided I was going to check out The Seahawk, which is another book written by Sabatini and another Errol Flynn movie often thought to be uh, better than Captain Blood even. And it is just a ripper of a movie. 1940, absolutely fantastic. But I'm watching it, and Claude Rains, the wonderful Claude Rains from Casablanca and the Invisible Man, he is playing a really insidious Spanish ambassador uh, who's visiting the Queen and gets kidnapped uh, along the way by Errol Flynn, the pirate, the English privateer in the story. And I'm watching Claude Rains, and I think, you know, look, this is not just me. He or the makeup team and the costumers are channeling Margaret Hamilton in the Wicked Witch of the West role of The Wizard of Oz. I said, there's just no, I'm not mistaking this. And I got so obsessed with it, I paused the movie and went and did some, you know, looked at some photographs of Margaret Hamilton, and I wanted to print some out and, you know, compare them, right? And I thought, look, that's a lot of stuff to get to. So I go back to the Seahawk, having just seen, just seen all these pictures of Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch. And the last one is she's with the captain of the flying monkeys, which terrorized me as a child. I pressed the play button in the Seahawks and we're in Queen Elizabeth's court and a monkey who's on the boat, I'd forgotten about it, a monkey on the boat with Errol Flynn comes in with a velvet crown hat on looking so much like the captain of the Flying Monkeys in The Wizard of Oz. Mm. So there are all these, and then later there's a weird, there are some beautiful shadow things uh, in the sword fights, but there is an exact moment 
as in beautifully inexact, I'm not even sure this was conscious, where the Queen's guards or and the Spanish guard have a moment, at least in shadow form, looking exactly like the witch's guards in her mm-hmm. sinister castle. So it was just one of those moments where you think, and this is, this is my uh, sort of take out, is trust your intuition about things and pull on the threads a little bit uh, and see maybe, you know, see if there is some reason why you think that. And now that I've collected some images, I think it would be obvious to, uh, you know, not everyone, but I think I would get seven out of ten people uh, to agree with me, there's some sort of connection between the way Claude Rains is made up and Margaret Hamilton as the witch, which is odd, you know? There, that's an odd, because he's not that villainous a character. Uh, why they mm-hmm. chose that, I don't know. But the monkey, and coming in exactly on time, you know? Yeah, yeah. Monkeys are always on time. That's a beautiful, well, that's part of uh, where we've got uh, some monkeys coming up in uh, your imaginative challenge. Indeed, indeed. Are those macaques? Uh, that's not bad. They're vervets. V-E-R-V-E-T. Ver- yes. One of t- South Africa only has really two types of monkeys. They have many different kinds of baboons. But uh, right. the vervets are really interesting. Looking up the vervets now, so I can. Do you say does that? Do you say it starts with a V or a B? Uh, v for Victor. V for Victor. Vervet. Ah, uh, oh, of course, yeah. Okay, I recognize those. They're a little bit. I recognize like those guys. They're 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 similar. They're they uh, they're not as well known here, frankly, because they haven't been used in as many experiments. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're um, poor monkeys. I like the way that they look, though. I like that they're they have this kind of striking black face on an otherwise gray, silver body. That's a cool look. It is a cool look, and I like their coats. They're not too hairy. They're not too you know, uh, sort of you know, hairless dog either. They're just kind of they look nice. Yeah. They look like they'd make a great friend. Just a great pal to have around. You know, that's a very interesting insight, Dave. This, you know, because it, you know, there's so much going on. I'm just, I'm just saying what, I've, what I think on, on this show now. This is so freeing to me. Whatever comes to mind. Well, that's, that, that's what we're trying to get every, you know, have a little faith. The branch will not break. Just go out there a little bit. Because what you just said, although it's so simple, and this is what, you know, I keep telling my students, and they're really starting to get into now, is that, the simple hides huge things. You Mm -hmm. didn't say pet, and you didn't have to really think about that or or make any adjustment. Pal and pet are very similar words, both beginning with P, three letters, but there is such a difference between them. But the other thing about that is anybody who knows anything about monkeys And certainly, all you have to know is about monkeys in the movies. That monkeys end up in your arms, you know? They they want to be held. They're going to be on you. You're going to be touching them, you know? You're going to be touching Mm -hmm. them maybe a lot more than a cat, 
because a cat only gets touched mm-hmm. when it wants to. You know, monkeys are, are all over the place, you know, and they're interactive, mm-hmm. and that hand-eye coordination, which is so magical, is just naturally attractive to humans. I'm surprised we don't have more uh, monkeys as companion animals, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. But that was a really beautiful insight because there is a kind of, uh, well, there's a little bit of a concern about hygiene. I mean, when I just made the comment earlier, I like their coats. There are some monkeys that you think, oh, no. And I don't actually like chimp, you know, chimps coats that much. They're kind of weird. I don't like the no, female chimps. No, no. I think that uh, Jordan Peele's new film, Nope, tapped into every creeping under the surface fear I have of chimps and just exploited it to the nth degree so I'm I'm done with chimps well not done with them I don't have anything against them they just kind of freak me out they look like they have incel hair you know they look like they <laughs> yeah oh that's a great that's a great song title that wouldn't do like a story or a book but that would do a great uh-huh. song title chimps have incel hair <laughs> oh speaking of which do you have a band and an oh, aphorism for yeah. us this week yeah i do yeah i do okay i i decided that the the idea of band is is big enough to occasionally include a solo artist. So we have a solo artist for uh, okay. standing in as the musical act. But she does have a stage name. And her stage name, her real name is Martha. Uh, but her stage name is Riverine, as in River I N E, you know, Riverine, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She can be described as a Rubens-esque young Catherine Zeta-Jones. Okay. A, a Rubens-esque one, though. Ruben, okay. She is a harpist who performs entirely in the nude, except for beautifully ornate Venetian carnival masks. Mm-hmm. A different one And her That's genre awesome. is tantric wellness ambient new classical. Mm-hmm. And her first album is called Flesh Tones. <laughs> and it features solo harp renditions of Welsh folk songs. Eric Satie and covers of the rhythms. Amazing. Joanna Joanna Newsom meets Enya meets Adele, back when Adele was bigger. Yeah, well, I think, look, I think you've uncovered my thought process. Those are the footprints, you know, roughly speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nice. Mm -hmm. Or maybe Lizzo would be a better comparison because she's so well known for her, her flute playing. Just a bizarre skill for a pop star to have to be able to play a, a flute like that, and it's it's kind of, it's a strange image to see too, just a big woman wearing very little clothes, playing a hallowed treasure <laughs> of of American history. I thought that was really beautiful image magic in its own way. Well, 
I I have problems with the glorification of extreme weight, but I really do have some interest in her. For one, I keep seeing her. She's always around when I'm when online. So she gets a right. lot of ads and PR, and, and she's getting a lot of attention. Uh, and I think that's kind of um, remarkable. I did see her in a funny, I think it's an SNL skit. I don't watch the whole thing, but uh, the three guys in, in, who were in one segment were trying, to, were trying to write a comedy sketch for her, and there were just a series of failures until they hit on Horny Zookeeper. And uh, she did look kind of cute in a safari suit, pith helmet, sort of doing a kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. She's, mm-hmm. she's got mm-hmm. some comic chops there that um, I just don't like, sort of the political correctness angle. Uh, but that's often maybe no, how she's no, manipulated. I think so. I think that there's the she's got the star power, and that third thing, that X factor that makes famous people famous and i just feel that corporations who would did i've told you about this when there was a sort of meme campaign on twitter to to say that uh uh there's that any kind of food discrimination is racist uh yeah and it was spearheaded by a woman who worked for chips ahoy um I think that you hit the nail on the head when you said that that's that's how she has been sort of adopted into... I mean, I don't really know, nor do I care what her feelings are. I'm assuming she's happy with the way that she is. Uh, That doesn't mean that it's healthy, but, you know, I'm assuming that she's fine with it. But I also have a hard time believing that people who are that rich really care about anything besides becoming more rich. And you know what? More power to them. Good for you. Go get your get your bag, as the as the kids say these days. Well, you know, here's the way to think of these people. Uh, you know, the, the celebrity idea, because earlier uh, in the series we, we talked you know, quite a bit about uh, the role of celebrity from uh, mythological origins yeah. to very tabloid, you know, down and dirty today. Uh, but I think if we if we take these people not as individuals and, and we just see them as corporations, I and mean, we forget the corporation, you know, corporate body, you know, they're they're really uh, not just they're not people as we know them. They're corporations, and I think an extension of that is maybe to think of them as kind of investment funds like unit trusts, and it's very hard. You have to do a lot of research to peel out. Who's invested in one of these, you know, mutual funds? You know, it could be the cartels. It could be anybody. You know, it takes a lot. And and once I think celebrities reach that status, they don't have any real control. Uh, finally, over their career and image, I don't believe. And they do get appropriated. No. And when they've leveraged uh, some sort of angle, you know, like weight or race or gender or whatever it is, then it stands to reason they're going to be a little bit more vulnerable to appropriation, you know, by lobbying forces. You know, it's just the way the world works. Yeah, absolutely. What would be the aphorism of the day? Oh, okay. Well, I'm ready. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really... Uh, 
in one sense I'm getting serious like really pushing myself in another sense I think there's a real joy in that because it comes easily and I'm not going to apologize for it so here it is and it is a little bit you know it's a little bit heavy a little bit wider we rebel against embodiment and yet embrace mutation and so we are turning into chimeric algorithms in electromagnetic air or plus size sphinxes with no temples to guard. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold the fucking fuck. That's a banger there at the end. So, okay, so we are avoiding or. I'm not. I don't think you used the word rebelling against embodiment. Yes, I we're did. Avoiding yeah, we're you did. You did. It. We're outright rebelling. Re we're not just avoiding. We're rebelling, rebelling okay, against yeah. it, while at the same time embracing transformation. Yeah. Hold on. Let me get Mutation. This on. A transformation would be would be. Uh, yeah. That's fun. Well, because I'm thinking about it in terms of trans yes. people, I think is is where my my yeah. head went to. Yeah. But Drugs, I do surgery, like I do like mutations. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, all of that. Okay. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So we are... Say it for me one more time. This, the, the, just the, Actually, just the whole thing, please. That's, this is so beautiful. Thank I want to talk about Thank this. Thank you. Okay. We rebel against embodiment and yet embrace mutation. And so we are turning into chimeric algorithms in electromagnetic mm -hmm. air or plus-sized sphinxes with no temples to guard. Plus-sized sphinxes with no temple to guard. Wow. That's, uh, you've out, you outdid yourself with this one. That is such an... What else can you really say but that we're turning into plus-size sphinxes with no temple to guard? You know, That's pretty much it, isn't know, it? That, this is the new group. I'm, I'm in a really excited group, and I think this show has really been a part of it. But I feel really uh, coming to terms with, with myself and relaxing and just letting it rip a little bit. And in ways that I really enjoy that seem to just come very, you know, instinctively. So I think that's a real message to everyone, is just let a little bit of that uh, sense of, of, of intuitive living come through. You know, we hear all about artificial intelligence. You never hear the phrase artificial intuition. There's a reason for that. Yeah. Well, I'll write that down. See, I'm ju I just can't, I, I can't. I can't help it now, and and you're a part of this exciting process, so I hold you responsible. But. I'm saying to anybody who asks about artificial intelligence from now on, I'm gonna say, yeah, yeah, big deal. Wake me up when they come up with artificial intuition. That's gonna be the the, the mic drop line. It, it's a big insight, and it really and it ties together some really interesting people and sources as background support for that you know if you if you roll that out as a kind of uh, hyperthesis and it really is worth then extrapolating speculating developing mining you know and there's a lot of interesting room to go there 
you know, uh, and it gets into, certainly into language, into the future of writing. I think we could do something really cool on that in a workshop sense, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think so, too. I think that we... I think that there's so many possibilities in terms... Well, okay, let me back up first, because between your aphorism and what I was telling you about on the phone before we started recording, for listeners... I have started to fill my free time uh, because I just cannot, for the life of me, imagine being on my deathbed and having to review how much time I spent looking at people argue about Elon Musk. I would, you know, I'd already be dying, but if I wasn't dying, I'd probably kill myself. So I've decided instead to get an app called Anki where you can download different flashcards, and I've been reviewing geography, Spanish, and Japanese. So, all with the idea that when you're spending that much time with a kid and the day is stretched out in front of you, there are times that you want to lean back and see if you can kill a little bit of time. Just kill a little bit of time. I'm not killing time anymore. I'm, I'm inhabiting time. I'm filling my time with things that make me learn. And that's on the same tip of what Chris is talking about, right? Turning these kind of ideas into workshops I'm past the sort of neophyte, the neophytic stage of uh, sort of starry-eyed, blissed-out wonder at how cool it is to write things down in notebooks and use flashcards, and I'm moving into a sort of hard-edged, imaginative pragmatism about the whole thing. How do you want to live your life? Do you want to be a plus-size sphinx with no temple to guard? I think not. I think I'll pass on that one. Well, the flash card, you know, and that can be a code for, well, you know, the crystal radio idea that we have been pushing, you know, of, of taking education and lifelong learning to a fun level in, under your own roof line, you know, with all these mm-hmm. cool projects, do it yourself, you know, give it a try, <laughs> you know, that kind of attitude, give it a try, you know, that seems like such a radical idea now. Um, and I think the Try Guys are some sort of show about that. That's the level that it's on. It's like, well, you know, maybe we should try something new. You know, you think? Uh, but the flashcard idea with, with uh, inhabiting and taking uh, real engaged exploratory excitement in the fact that the one master metaphorical frame that we may not be able to escape is the is the notion of location you know that may be kind of something we don't want to escape think about that do you really want to have no to be beyond location i don't think so i i think that would be kind of uh i don't know that sounds a little bit fragile to me uh but when you you use things like flashcards in uh, sort of really, you know, get with some geographical sort of knowledge, which is really cool for flashcards. Uh, you, you really can inhabit space more fully because you can start to get some geographic confidence and, and really rearrange the map. For example, you know, the countries of Central America, they're not that many, you know. It's, and it's not as confusing as Europe. I think for me, it's like a really nice balance. But when you get really familiar with that, and then you can link the names to a visualization of the map, you 
can actually start rearranging those puzzle pieces, you know, physically, and and then still put them back together because you're really in touch with the knowledge now. You've got that to another, you've got it to an intuitive level. Right. You can yeah, start yeah. to play exactly. with, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well. For everybody at home, you might have heard me hint at this, but this is the first time Chris has sent me a photographic hint of what my imaginative challenge was to be, and I'm instructed to be looking at it, so I have it called up here on my phone. It is a picture of some uh, sort of bush, trees perhaps, the tops of trees against a cloudy, rainy sky with four vervets Three of them are in a group. One of them is off to the far right-hand side of the picture, looking off into the distance. Maybe a sentry, perhaps an exile. I'm not sure. Well, okay. For listeners, uh, I will um, certify that David's description of the photograph I sent him is is completely valid, certainly, but I think is pretty accurate. I think I think you've got a pretty clear. It's a color shot, as you may have implied. Uh, it's in landscape, and it is the tops of uh, trees in the South African bush against a, a thunder sky. Uh, so there's sunlight behind me, the photographer and a big storm coming. And these monkeys, vervet monkeys, uh, along with baboons, probably the most common in in South Africa and Southern Africa. They're uh, sort of white, silver, gray, uh, medium-sized monkeys with beautiful black faces. Uh, They're they're pretty uh, just mellow looking. They're not scary like some are. They're not really cute. They're just, uh, they're just who they are. They've got a lot of integrity just without any other element. And I would say, David, that as a starting point, your beautiful uh, dichotomy opposition binary juxtaposition of sentry or exile is just about as beautifully phrased as possible. I think your gift for uh, crystallizing and not ossifying uh, concepts that come to you out of the blue into just beautiful things you can hold in the hands of your mind, you know, century or exile. You can, anyone can say that and remember it and start to think, huh, okay. So you've gotten onto something really fundamental about this photograph. Okay, now here's the rest of the prompt for your imaginative challenge. This is part of a five-photo sequence that I took. It's photo number one. Okay, so it's the starting point as far as we're concerned. There are five photos in total. Your imaginative challenge is two parts. One, you're to speculate, fantasize, imagine, extrapolate what will be the fifth photograph, what that will look like. And we are hoping for the same kind of description uh, that you gave to photo number one. 
But off mic and in your notebook, what I'd like you to do is to try to draw the intermediate photographs in the sequence. And I think we can't accept it as a sequence without questioning the nature of the sequence because it is five photos that I took uh, one after the other um, and I'm presenting it to you that way. So that's the kind of given. We won't query okay. the notion of sequentiality. Uh, and then if there's time you could describe the the sequence of your interpretations. Interpretation is such a heavy, interesting word. So is that clear? It is clear. Yeah, very exciting. I've got a fresh page so that my art skills can truly shine. Well, my, you my, do uh, have some art skills, but but just to uh, <laughs> clarify for listeners, David's description was, was very accurate of the photo. It's, it's relatively simple to draw even for people without any drawing confidence because it's basically a horizon line in landscape and the the vervet monkeys themselves can really just you know be indicated roughly so it's fairly uh simple or you know in its ingredients to to handle with a pencil or pen mm -hmm. but david's good mm -hmm. so we'll, we'll we'll expect some uh some some detail there but we're, we're investigating here uh, my new real focused topics in my workshops of the, the power of inference, the magic of inference, speculation, and the possibilities of tactical dreaming. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so cool. I can't cool. wait Got to it. hear what you're going to do. All right. Yeah, I can't either. We'll have to see. <laughs> we'll have to see it as it comes. So today, a subject that I'm very excited about, which is piracy. I have been, as a preamble, I've been thinking about piracy in our time because you will often see the discussion had between people with time on their hands or time to kill about socialism, communism, fascism, and capitalism. But piracy to me, although it has its own internal hierarchical system, is often not talked about as a potential way of living your life. The cyberpunk genre that I've been obsessed with lately and that functions largely as the, the genre for my new novel deals with piracy in the future so the heroes of cyberpunk are often hackers and people who are able to scam the system and you know hijack technology from moving convoys it's very much pirates in a way so i've been thinking in terms of the world being what it is rather than argue with other people about what sort of what flavor of boot would you like in your mouth I think we need to start thinking about piracy. Well, to say it another way, have we ever really stopped thinking about piracy? I think that piracy is a very protean idea that manages to change shape 
you know, across the centuries and across uh, cultures. But there are some clues to you know the nature of, of, of what what piracy you know innocence really is because I think it's sort of like uh, you know one person's uh, hatred is another person's terrorist you know one person's mm-hmm. pirate is another person another culture's hero you know um, and it's very well it's part of a larger uh, story of how we have lost all sense of, of nuance and flattened every curve because up until fairly recently it was just assumed that heroes were, were also kind of villains and that there was a, a lot of ambiguity there um, and good people did really bad things and, and they were glorified you know and, and we, we have that you know, we like gangster films. We like pirates. We, you know, we were conflicted. We have more words in the English language for crime, forms of crime, than any other major language. You know, so wow. there's some interesting stuff going on there. But uh, I think we should explain how we um, how we got to talking about pirates because we were talking about lunar voyages and the notion of allegory and satire and exploration and discovery and how new cultures on earth were getting processed in terms of these uh, imaginary voyage allegories. But the reason we got onto that was because uh, of my rediscovery of Daniel Defoe and along the way of looking at the amazing Defoe was, an, was hugely prolific in his lifetime as a writer and we really don't know all the stuff he did because everybody used pseudonyms then to avoid censure uh, and getting locked off the Twitter of, of their time uh, but he wrote a lot about pirates and then Halloween was coming up and then David and I started talking about piracy and William Burroughs uh, talking about Captain Mission, which is actually uh, misspelled. The, the, the original character uh, is Misson, M-I-S-S-O-N, not Mission, but anyway, it sounds better as Mission. So we got into the whole uh, thing about parts, and David's looked at the governmental side of it, which I think is a fascinating aspect of this and it ties in with utopian communities, uh, which is part of our imaginary realm theme, but real utopian communities that were founded on various socio-political principles. Uh, There's a lot of interesting stuff, but I thought we should just step back to the history as we know it of, of piracy. Uh, because it's, it's been such a popular theme since, well, since the beginning. Do you know what the word pirate means? Where it comes from? That's a good story. I'm going to guess that it's Chinese. Uh, well, that would be a different word. To be honest, that would be you know it, it comes from uh, the the Greco Latin. It's it comes oh, okay. from yeah. It has Greek origins that tie into to make an attempt 
or to attack. And to make an attempt or to attack, but not to make an attempt to attack. No, just no two attempts in general. No, okay. very, no, a connection between attempt and uh, attack. I think that's right. You know, right, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna attempt to do something here. Uh, well, okay. Well, when you get ready to do it and you've done it, tell us. You know, that's kind of an attempt to sort of so. But if you put it up against attack, it sounds, or you substitute attack for attempt, that gets kind of interesting, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And it speaks mm-hmm. to yeah. the action nature, I think, of what we, uh, you know, when we think of pirates. Uh, my own experience with the Malaysian pirates, the first thing they said to me, the Malaysian pirates, up to, up, you know, relatively recent times, we are not pirates. <laughs> I love right. that. I love that. I mentioned that in my textbook. The, the Malaysian phrase for that is beautiful, too. But if you go back to Defoe, and he's, he's so important because he's involved in a controversy that we need more of in contemporary writing today. There is a book called A General History of the Pirates, which is really spelled the Greek word, P-Y-R-A-T-E-S. Yeah, that way it's cooler. And it's a fantastic look at the major uh, major pirate figures. But it includes, interestingly, two women, Mary Reed and Anne Bonny. And I think, you know, that's that's fascinating in itself in 1724. Well, the question is, it's credited to a Charles, Captain Charles Johnson, but there's absolutely really no record of him. And any records linked to other writers in very different times. It looks very sus. And I came across a really um, cool uh, question. It's kind of an... Uh, uh, an amateur scholarly article, a crystal radio scar- scholarly article about uh, whether or not this guy Charles Johnson was this really a pseudonym for Daniel Defoe. And the woman's mm. name is Cindy Valor, V-A-L-L-A-R. And I found it online. She's an editor and reviewer, and it's an absolutely fantastic article. It's what you know, it's unfortunate that academic writing is often so boring and so tight-assed. This is just free and loose and understandable, and it's fascinating. So, in the, one of the seminal works that introduces and implants, doesn't just introduce it, implants a lot of the ideas and imagery about piracy that we have today. In, you know, just in a mm-hmm. costume, movie, commercial entertainment. They're so ingrained, uh, we can even all talk like pirates, supposedly, you know? Mm-hmm. The starting point of it is a very mysterious question of who the actual author is. So we get kind of piracy performed in a strange way. Because um, if, if piracy has to do with stealing, it has, it's first of all to do with some kind of... of deceptive intent or some sort of subversion, you know? Um, mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm, you'd agree that we, that's an aspect of piracy that is, is kind of incontrovertible. 
that it's subversion <laughs> of something, some kind of order, some kind of authority. Uh, I think. Don't you think that's fundamental to it? No, it has to. Yeah, it has to be. There has to be a sort of a hierarchical or governmental or tribal body that is dictated norms that the pirate is um, crossing. That is that he's a, he's a trickster figure. Yeah, I think of a more modern update is Jack Sparrow, who when you watch those films, you can never tell whose side Johnny Depp's character is on, uh, because he's sort of just this chaotic, yeah, trickster figure essentially. Yeah, well, kind of, you know, like what when we've talked about rock and roll as a paradigm, mm-hmm. as a mythological mm-hmm. paradigm, that's it's piracy. The pirate and you know the pirate and the rock star you know that's kind and so johnny depp's sort of take on keith richards you know that makes perfect Mm -hmm. sense in that way Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. and that kind of implies you can't have and this is what was so wild about the elizabethan era that there was really some confusion could you have pirates as a navy could you have a navy of pirates you know is that possible can you have you know, can rock and roll uh, become parents? Can rock and rollers become yeah. parents? You know, this an authority yeah. figures, or is that a contradiction? It's not just an aging thing. It's it's the movement up the up the authority ladder to being in charge. How can the right. you know, the subversive forces, you know, run a government? Be in, and that's one of the interesting things yeah. we'll get to with when the when the rules are more guidelines, as Jeffrey Rush's character says in the, yeah, in the film. Yeah, yeah. No, they're more like guide the code. It's more like guidelines. Yeah, that's lovely, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And Rush is such yeah. a good actor. So we begin with this weird thing about the nature of of pirates, and like all. Uh, the whole history of imaginary voyages and real, very you know, what we think of as real voyages, um, and some of the writers, you know, like the the pirate William Dampier, who we're going to get to yeah, in in future episodes, he was just such a great writer. You don't know, you know, where the truth, you know, where the truth ends, because uh, what do you say about someone who circumnavigated the globe? In those days, and has some of the weirdest land masses named after him, and was a pirate, and was a great writer, and was a naturalist, and and you know, uh, amateur science, you know, on and on and on. I mean, how how do you big time foodie? Yeah. Oh right. Lay. Oh yeah. Uh, should we do that? Now? No, we'll do that when we get to him. But you're right. You you mm-hmm. you and, and his influence is just so enormous. So the whole notion of exaggeration is part of the subversive magic of, of piracy and essential to these larger genres of imaginary voyages and travel, you know. Travel is really the ultimate genre for all human writing when you think about it. Um, it certainly mm-hmm. has, you know, otherwise we wouldn't be aware of it. It's inherently traveled, you know. Right. Right, right, right. And it's traveling still. Uh, yeah. So Adventure. Exactly. And I think this is a great sort of lost, you know, explorer idea. But to link back around, because um, I want to get to the, 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 the political sort of overture that you made. Um, 
but it is important to know, I think, that, that, that Daniel Defoe may have left a really uh, beautiful footprint that is kind of like a maze, and we just, we, we're not really even sure where his writing stops, because he was a pamphleteer, which I th- I'd like to bring that name, that kind of title back. Oh, I've, yes, absolutely. Isn't that great? We're on the same page. That exact word is what I put in my uh, in my professional biography, or not biography, but blurb, you know? I put uh, publisher, writer, pamphleteer. Oh, that is fantastic. That really has taken mm-hmm. on a new resonance uh, for me again. I mean, I, I hadn't really thought about that since college days, but that was a beautiful uh, phrase. It was considered a, a, you know, a special form of writing, a kind of occupation, and it includes... In, in English, it's particularly sort of, I think, associated with London of a certain period. Uh, and it's a beautiful moment in uh, the history of mass communications. It's really fundamental in, in that sense. And the border between fiction, creative, non-fiction, which wouldn't have been a phrase people would use then, and journalism is very, very mm-hmm. important. But it includes just some really great writers in addition to the foe. Charles Lamb, William Hazlitt, on and on. There was a real coffee house culture, you know, early sort of the, like the folk scene in Berkeley pre, you know, Haight-Ashbury, you know. It was some really, really interesting things going on there. Um, but one of, of the things that we are... Uh, pretty clear on is that uh, there is work on on piracy that um, Defoe did put his name to and is part of his collected works in the Delphi edition which you can get on Kindle for next to nothing and I highly recommend. So he wrote about pirates very very directly and he wrote about them for a reason and we know what the reason was. Uh, to paraphrase, he said they encompass everything that is interesting about being human. And as Dave and I mentioned in the last episode, Defoe is particularly odd and worth attention because he was so very grounded in the climate the mood, the tenor, and the details of his time, and yet he was just luminously foresightful about many, many other things. So when he got interested in in piracy, I think that triggered a lot of other um, people's interest, you know? It it began to be something, Mm -hmm. and I think, here's here's my throwback to you, I'm wondering if this isn't, with this rise of, of kind of mass communications, of, of and certainly printing technologies beginning to work its way into uh, the culture at large. I'm wondering if pirates and are in the interest in pirates didn't start popular culture in certain ways. You know, obviously popular Ooh, culture oh existed. Wow. But you know what I mean? A, a, a line between, right. you know, 
pre-modernity and the beginnings of the modern age. Mm. And that would put pop culture as a way of documenting and sort of bringing into the fold of outsider figures. Exactly. And as we right, right. I'll leave it there actually. I think I like that. I think that's I like what exactly what yeah. it did. And I and I think that's an interesting diagnostic to put on other art movements, other political orientations, you know, our diversity and inclusion obsessions of today. I think that's an interesting frame because do they, in fact, expand margins, or do they just simply lose focus, you know? Losing focus mm-hmm. isn't, you know, that's not exactly what the goal is, you know? So I think there are some interesting things in, in that comment. Um, so Defoe begins to explore uh, the history of piracy as a journalist of his time a very street-savvy journalist of his time. And he is not a seaman, does not have direct nautical experience, but is he's a fearsome researcher and uh, osmoser of, of data and knowledge. And so he starts really backgrounding the history of the pirates. And then just being an interesting storytelling, imaginative person who gets into the spirit of piracy and blurred lines, Defoe's writing starts to blur into, you know, perhaps myth, perhaps legend. And I think that's a beautiful uh, analog, uh, pre-echo of what has happened in popular culture, that how it works, a, a mechanic of it. And the focal point in this discussion is the character of Captain Misson or Mission, who Defoe gets to. And for people who may have encountered that character in uh, Burroughs' Cities of the Red Knight, uh, Captain Misson is famous as, as founding a pirate utopian kingdom. <laughs> utopia, not kingdom. Uh, in Madagascar uh, called Libertalia and that is the link back to David's overture about the, the political nature or how piracy relates to authority uh, social participation and social control mm-hmm. And it's fascinating that people are so interested in this when, in reality, they're not. Most people don't seem to be interested in becoming pirates. It's a, again, it's the looking at it from the outside in, and you know, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we had a, a Libertalia? But when you actually have to see how pirates <laughs> get scurvy and are unwashed and are generally raunchy and rowdy and you know they're they're fun people it's it becomes a matter of hmm maybe i do like structure a bit maybe this is just something that i'd like to imagine myself doing rather than actually doing well 
you know, it, it makes me think about what the the readers of this Captain Charles Johnson, if he were a real figure, or Daniel Defoe at that time, what was the hit that they were getting reading about pirates? Had mm-hmm. history already blurred into romance and entertainment? And mm-hmm. if that isn't a definition part of what popular culture you know, really means today at street level, I, I don't know what it is, actually. I think that's, right. that's right. exactly what it is. Uh, it's, it's the process of, of history continually and continuously blurring into uh, romance slash entertainment. What do you think that's all about? What do you think the, his, like the, the blurring, the attraction to the blurring effect is? That it makes it, well, I mean, obviously it makes it more fun, but what is, I mean, we all do that now. It's become hyper-accelerated line blurring <clears throat> to where pretty much every citizen who has an iPhone can construct their own blurry history of themselves and image of themselves. So what is that What is that about? Is it just natural human storytelling? Well, yeah, uh, which is in yeah. itself a huge, you know, gigantic uh, and ever-changing in shape mystery you know I mean mm-hmm. what how that how that oscillates through time the human storytelling I mean it almost storytelling is 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 inherent in human you just say human and you you've got story mm-hmm. as the fundamental structure you know mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because that's so rich and so so resonant you know what what doesn't that really cover if you and i think this is going to be a puzzle for you know people in ai and supercomputing mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. because you really can't codify the notion of, of story but I, I i think there's an answer uh, i was thinking about okay my, the answer to my question is maybe the answer to your recent question my question was, what were the, the readers of that period getting? And I think the answer to your question is that the, me- the mechanics of, of the appeal of piracy worked on uh, two very distinct levels. One was all the sort of the, the production design, if you like. The, the beautiful furnishings, the language, the imagery, uh, just familiar enough to people still very dependent on nautical technology, but you know, just removed enough so the detail in the, in the storytelling was richly satisfying, but you know, novel but still familiar, you know, perfectly balanced on that, but. I think that people have inherent questions about, and this would apply, I think, uh, to later gangster, um, any sort of criminal unit, if you like, you know? They have questions about the chain of command and how that works. And I think it's interesting that very average, you know, very street level folk who aren't 
reading, you know, people who consider themselves thinking people necessarily, they have questions about authority. And, and not just politics is in the sense of policy, but leadership, you know, the playground idea of, of who's, who's in charge, who's captain, you know, how does that work? And don't you think mm. that that's just, uh, just so inherently human, it, it, we almost can't see it? I think so. That's really interesting, this idea of piracy as being an attraction to its opposite, which is the chain of command. Yes! Um, yes, this is it. That's, yeah, it's like it's viewing something through its negative, and the negative is obviously more fun. It becomes really tricky. I think you did a really good job of describing the furnishing and the dialects and the way that, you know... It has a kind of musicality and an aesthetic quality that people really vibed with. But this deeper social issue, yeah, it really all comes down to uh, who's king of the hill, who's, who's in charge. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, it almost makes you wonder if, you remember in, at the end of The Matrix, you know, because there were those three movies, and at the end of the third one, Neo makes it all the way to the programmer who essentially informs Neo that his whole rebellion is necessary to keep the simulation functioning, that without the rebellion, something would go wrong. There always has to be that kind of pushback. That might be a good, you know, later term metaphor for pirates as well. I wonder about that. I do wonder if it couldn't also be and just an attraction to a perception of the way things quote-unquote used to be right before we had this whole slew of rules and architecture and commerce and everybody felt as though their or people born into these societies i should say felt as though their lives were being forced down a single track i wonder if there was this inherent inner calling to be a bit more wild a bit more against the rules I, you know because I wonder this about myself I've been called a contrarian before and I don't think that I'm a contrarian uh, but there's a there's a quality to the feel like the the appreciation of and the pursuit of freedom or independence very tricky words that some people have and some people just do not well what you have amongst several really interesting things in your toolkit is some real uh, aptitude for inversion. We've talked about that technique. It's something that I really emphasize. And the important thing that, that's really quite remarkable, and, and you do this across a range of different situations, which shows a dimensional understanding, uh, not just a, a, a complete surface level one. but able to uh, really understand the optics of inversion conceptually, you know? So it isn't, mm -hmm. contra you know, contrarianism is kind of a, a, a caricature of the idea, you know? It's not that, really, um, because that's not how optics actually work, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it's, mm -hmm. it, they, they don't flush down to that simple a, a, a level. And it's very hard to keep that conceptually in mind 
um, because it's our dominant, you know, vision is our you know, sort of our dominant uh, sense, physical sense. So it's it, it's a tricky thing to do uh, to manage the optics of an idea, um, but you but you do there. But one thing that that I was thinking of, um, and I think it 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 marks a distinctive point, uh, you know, because we're talking about the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, where suddenly there's a whole new awareness of things. And one of the things that, that Defoe does so brilliantly as a writer, without being boring in any way, and he doesn't hit you over the head with it, but he demonstrates a real understanding of how policy and administration, and therefore bureaucracy, had started to really encumber society. You know, the record keeping. He's really good as a journalist of just showing how already even, you know, in those days of hand printing, you know, copying in that sort of Bartleby the Scrivener sort of, what, even before that, you know, that was how records were kept. But already the, the amount of paperwork real and and conceptual was starting to build up you know and mm -hmm. that was mm -hmm. you know England that was just you know one major center of it but that was a real starting point for a modern perspective to creep in that somehow no matter what you were trying to do the sheer scale of it maybe the sheer numbers of people whatever but it has to come down to more of a particular mindset. Record keeping and admin and paperwork and red tape began to accumulate, you know, and really start to, some really smart people started to take notice of it and just go, wow, you know, this just isn't, this isn't just politics, this isn't just background noise. This is noise as signal now. Mm. The dummy data, the dummy data becomes more important than the data itself. Yeah. Again, yeah, with this, yeah, these inversions and this negative side, that is a really interesting way of putting it. And I keep bringing it to the present day, I know, but I can't help but think that the, the urge in people for piracy has to be even greater now everything there's rules everywhere exactly. there's rules for, there, exactly. there's even rules for things i took my kid to uh chick-fil-a for lunch and we played in the play place and those things are locked up tight even the floors are made out of this cushiony material and okay sure fine whatever but i remember the mcdonald's ball pit from when i was a kid and you could crack your skull, and I'm sure several kids did, which is why they don't have the ball pit anymore. But amongst even other since reasons, I was a, amongst yeah, amongst other reasons, right? Uh, but like, I yeah, I can't help but think that now everything is so locked up tight that this natural human inclination to see all of this red tape, and for some people to go, oh. There's got to be a way around all this. I've got to figure out my own path. That might be describing, if there was an American spirit to speak of, that might be it, right? How do we get around all the red tape? Which, again, 
the law of opposites is hilarious because in the process of attempting to get around it, America has spawned some of the most Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator-esque hall monitor Karens in the entire world. You see what I'm saying? Oh, listen, listen. I, I look. I I think that there's a whole aspect to this that that as as severe as the threat that you mentioned is, uh, it still falls under the, the rubric of you know don't fence me in. Uh, yeah. There the other side, which is fairly recent and far more pervasive than than we would like to think, is surveillance. You know, yep. I mean, here's yeah. a paranoid thought. Uh, think how I mean. Gus features in photography and video already in ways that you may not, you know, have any idea about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we've all been videotaped. Right. We, you know, I mean, in some way, we, you know, smile. You're on camera. Exactly, and you just you never. We wouldn't have any idea how often that's been the case. You know, and, and there isn't really a reason uh, to be paranoid about that, depending on your definition of that word. Um, but I don't think we should ignore it either. I mean, there's no harm in ignoring because a lot, you know, we really don't have any idea. Um, I don't think we need to be afraid of it because it's just so ubiquitous now. It's just the way it is. But nevertheless, I don't think we should forget about it either. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's, again, it brings you right to cyberpunk where it's this total surveillance state. Everything is monitored, but you have people going to black market ripper docs to put in new neural implants in their brain so they can get around the payment processing system for their apartment complex it's like that spirit never goes away i have a question that might seem out of left field but it's the thing that popped up in my mind what do you think then because when you talk about surveillance states you have to bring up china and my impression at least this is a broad generalization of a billion people my impression of it at least is that it's more accepted in that culture so what's the where's the chinese pirate spirit i think that's a really interesting question because uh well there are a couple of answers about that where it's it's gone to or where you could definitely look to find it i mean it's such a huge country and so many different cultures really and i i don't mean to in any way suggest i i really know, but I do have some thoughts about it based on, on the experience I do have, and I, I think for starters, you could peel away certain sections and say, and they're, they're strangely enough not part of the PRC, now, Taiwan and Hong Kong, mm, and, there we go. and yeah. Macau, uh, which mm-hmm. is still, you know, the, those are, are three ancient centers of trade and, and piracy and there is some pirate spirit that, that moves on there. and I think the resistance to uh, the Chinese government at large in, in England China is, is an example of, of that you know it's uh, they're, they're working pirates in uh, in practice today 
Uh, and certainly those centers are home of ongoing piracy, whether it be super tanker, you know, shipping, you know, wharf style piracy, or the Taiwanese thing of intellectual property, you know, and knocking mm -hmm, off goods mm -hmm. and just, you know, it's... Uh, That's so true. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, of course there are huge pirate hubs all, all around that area that are that are fighting to this day. I'm recalling a documentary put out by the company Popular Front, which is really great if you're interested in modern guerrilla warfare around the globe. And he did a great three-part documentary about some rebels, some, some cyberpunk techno rebels in Hong Kong and how they're attempting to circumvent the, the Chinese government. So thank you for reminding me of that because of course it's there. Yeah. It's just obviously the same as us. It's not, you're not going to see it in the, perhaps the populace at large, or at least the government approved populace at large. Yeah, look, I think that's absolutely right about Hong Kong. I, I found it just tremendously exciting, uh, particularly from the young people, you know, from, say, your age now, like, you know, mid-30s down to early 20s. I found a really uh, interesting scene that crossed over between the arts and theater and, uh, and, and the sciences. You know, there's some really... Uh, and same with Singapore, you know. I think there's a lot of divergent piratical thinking in, in young people. Um, and in what sense there, I think technology has helped because it's, it's got them more in touch with each other. And that's some of the most interesting stuff that, that I can imagine. I mean, if I were a young person in America, I would really think about Hong Kong. Singapore. And both those places seem completely counterintuitive because they're two of the most expensive cities in the world. Uh, Hong Kong has tremendous pollution and all sorts of difficulties. Singapore is, is beautiful and, and pretty tidy. And some people think it's, it's overly tidy and its laws are you know, restrictive because of, of well, particularly drug convictions. Uh, but I don't death I penalty think there for drug convictions. I think it's a great pirate cities. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Well, William Dampier, I wanted to talk about him a little bit because you hit me to this guy. Unless you hit, unless you wanted to stick on this for a second. Well, there's, I, I wanted to look. I think Dampier is going. I'd like to sort of do a whole thing on him because I think he's just okay. amongst other things such a great writer, but. I wanted to extend this notion of uh, the Libertalia idea, the pirate utopian notion of some sort of, uh, well, the Republic of Pirates is the, is the phrase, the idea, um, which in a way is a kind of proto-counterculture, proto-woke idea that I think is, is really so interesting but here's just a so we extend through the through line here is uh, Defoe or Charles Johnson creating an appetite in the public's mind particularly in England about piracy 
and these figures entering both the historical frame and what is now the, the emergent popular culture frame, the beginnings of mass communication, the beginnings of what we do, things like rock and roll. Subversion as a possible entertainment idea. So we get to then a mix of blending of these historical, real, supposedly, pirate figures and their inherently legendary exploits. And we're going to talk about William Dampier as sort of the, the champion of them all on every level. But from real figures of some kind of historical documentation, we move to the figure of Captain Missum and uh, a now fictional, mythic, legendary figure. And it might be, there. I'm sure he has some other uh, analogs. They don't immediately come to mind of that time. But interesting to see this figure then become the nominal uh, leader, patriarch, if you will, of these utopian, these pirate utopian communities. And here is just a description of the idea of the Republic of Pirates. And this is based on, on a real uh, settlement. The Republic of Pirates was the base and stronghold of a loose confederacy run by privateers turned pirates in Nassau on New Providence Island in the Bahamas during the golden age of piracy. Just think about how richly resonant that is with some of the lingo of today, don't you think? The stronghold. I like the word stronghold. Uh, it's a, but it's a loose confederacy. And, and mm -hmm. privateers turned pirates. Those, that's hyphenated. That's, you know, that's one phrase. And it just sounds like a lot of the descriptions of communes that I remember, you know, I was, you know, think, you know, heard of all these legends of the 1960s, you know, growing up in Berkeley and Oakland, and a lot of them, you know, really had dwindled away, or uh, they were really religious cult. There was all of this question about how people organize themselves, and is there an alternative to the uh, the cutthroat? Isn't that interesting? We use the term cutthroat competition of capitalism. You know, cutthroat being, you know, the ultimate pirate word, and it is one word, you know. Uh, are there alternatives to that? Well, uh, maybe not, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Yeah, I think that that is going to make a comeback in a serious way once people can divorce their, themselves from the ideas of these massive collections of people. I think that the internet and social media have made everything feel a bit closer and more connected than it used to be. And once we can sort of get back to something like that... Be, okay, here's a really good example. So I was listening to a podcast recently about a group of guys who do 3d printing they 3d print their guns you want to talk about modern day pirates these people who are out here printing they're called fgc nines which stands for 
fuck gun control nine. Oh wow! <laughs> so you put you put the program into or you download the schematics, you upload them to your three D printer, and using what looks like weed whacker ribbon, uh, you can print out plastic guns that function. They actually work. And clear metal um, detectors. Yeah, and clear metal detectors. So I'm listening to this, and they've got me. You know, they're gonna. It's like, okay, we're gonna have nine families out here. Everybody who signs up is gonna, you know, know what they're. And then all of a sudden, all the rules start coming in. And this guy says, you know, divorce is not allowed on the compound, and the people have to be Christian. And I'm like, ah, see, you almost had it. You almost had that idea. But I have this vision of a hippie artist commune but with guns so in my imagination hippies are totally cool with with guns they're not you know these sort of like oh the the cause the root cause of all evil in the world and you live on this land and you i don't think i'd make much of a farmer so in this respect we have our own internet and we make our money by hijacking the SEO uh, of, of YouTube and rerouting uh, funds from influencer videos into our account. And we order all the things that we need to just make art and shoot guns in the wilderness. <laughs> That's my pirate utopia. Yeah. That's my libertalia. Yeah, well, I think that that is the essence of the cyberpunk uh, vision. Um, you know, in its sort of positive, heroic life, and it's one of the reasons why it was so popular. It just, I think that anything that really catches on is a kind of reinvention, reincarnation of the pirate vibe. You know, um, mm-hmm. and that's at least the starting point of everything. Whether or not it remains that, that this is this is the problem with it, and I think it's part of the. Uh, the strangely frustrating appeal of, of piracy is this question of, well, what happens when subversion becomes the norm, you know? And mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. art movement I think that you and I have ever been interested in has run into that problem, you know? Yes, uh, right. It, it's, it's how right. do you, you know, how do you keep on the edge? How do you keep out there? Um, how long... I mean, there are so many aspects to it. Like, how long can Bruce Springsteen sing about, you know, the working man, you know, when he's yeah. got a few houses right. worth $14, 15000000 million, not just one, but, a, you know, a few. Uh, Rappers, I think, have a solution to this, which is you lose it all in, in illicit dice games. Yeah. Rappers are the last pirates, you know. Okay, I made $2 million off this record contract. Let's hit the block. And, and shake some dice up. I um, while we were talking, I was looking at the the Wikipedia for a general history of pirates, and I really liked this quote from Caraccioli. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Caraccioli. Uh, it says um, uh, he gradually converted Missin and a sizable portion of the rest of the crew to his way of thinking. And this is the quote. He fell upon government and showed that every man was born free and had as much right to what would support him as to the air he respired, that the vast difference betwixt man and man, the one wallowing in luxury and the other in the most pinching necessity, was owing only to avarice and ambition on the one hand and a pusillanimous subjection on the other. Oh, 
That's a cool quote. That is a cool quote. That's a cool quote. quote. That is a cool <laughs> quote. Well, see, it's all really starting. And, you know, it's the golden age of piracy, which is historically defined as the 1650s to the 1730s. We'll cross-reference that against uh, particularly um, the major sea powers, intellectual history of that time, England, Portugal, the Netherlands, Spain, you know. Uh, it's really, I mean, there's so much stuff that is just churning around there. I mean, we think we have some stuff going on today. We really, you know, I, I get so disappointed to think that people walking right. around think they live in interesting times, you know. I'm not saying they're not, you know, interesting or really complicated and, and messed up, because they are. But I think it's astonishing that people can think that, that you know, other eras haven't dealt with uh, the equal of not the greater. Um, but it's this strange notion of how subversive forces can manage to then take on some sort of form of order and, and meaningful sustainability, you know? How, how does that work? And, and that really is a very curious social dynamic of, of how, that, how that works, how, how a cult, in a sense, can really become, you know, big time. Because uh, they right, figure into right. it. I mean, they're sort of... Um, and there's an occult, occult aspect to piracy for sure in terms of knowledge and secrets and who's inside and who's not. And I mean, it really, I think Defoe was right. It, it just covers everything that's interesting about being human. Uh, and in a, in a woke way, I think it's very interesting mm-hmm. the seminal book, The History of Pirates. Uh, features two women pirates. I mean, I think that's pretty yeah. radical yeah. for its time. Right. I like what you're saying. Okay, I'm digging what you're saying. I'm get. I'm getting it now. The coming together of a kind of order through this sort of subversion is very, very interesting to me. And I wonder if you didn't find uh, the answer to how piracy can turn into a kind of order when you were talking about blurred lines and chance, right? So I'm, I'm picturing, you know, we talked about what if Bruce Springsteen took his money to a dice game in the projects and just, you know, every once in a while, just to keep himself honest, he just put it all on the line and, and decided to, what's that game pirate dice that they play in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie yeah. where you have to sort of guess? But I'm wondering if there couldn't be a... Oh, you leaving, Mom? All right, I love you too. Thanks for coming over. That's okay. Yeah, he's he's napping. I love you too. Thank you. All right, bye bye. Um, but so we're we're on to something here in the idea that what society does that doesn't quite work, I think, is attempt to put into the written word a law that is firm and. Uh, kind of unshakable but what about a law that just sort of went off of vibes you know like is he guilty technically to the letter of the law yes but i mean he's cool we can let this one slide and is this person innocent well technically 
to the letter of the law. They did everything legally. But I mean, come on, this guy's a dick. Let's chop his head off. <laughs> you see what I mean, though. You see what I, yeah. like, I, I really do I think do. there's there's I think I really do think there's something there. Once you have these communes or these cults, they all sort of fall apart because they develop a rigid system of rules that people begin to exploit and and fall. And the way around that is by blurring things into myth, paradox, riddle, uh, getting everybody on a sort of unstable, shaky ground, right? That's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that, that's a very complicated thing to dynamically perform, you know. Uh, and it, it really gets to our, our deeper questions about the nature of culture uh, and whether or not nature is in permanent inherent uh, conflict with culture, if that's, if that's you know, inherent in the definition uh, of, of culture. It, it, those that that oscillation between nature and culture has been really the theme that we've explored, you know, across all the episodes to date. And piracy is, I think, we're, we're beginning to uh, get some optics together, you know, to look at this because uh, it it does, as Defoe says, cut across everything that is interesting about human. Uh, psychology and group dynamics you know that's what we quickly (laughs) quickly get to is how uh, a unit of people organizes themselves and if they're you know we have other expressions no honor among thieves well how would that work Mm -hmm. i mean you'd never be able Mm -hmm. to go to sleep would you that that doesn't sound like a well-organized criminal uh machine so there's got to be some confidence. There's got to be some trust, and so people start wondering about that. And of course, that links back to all of us in our uh, romantic sexual relationships. How do we trust? You know, no honor among thee. You know, it's just like so we're we're embedded in this matrix of, of pirate fascination, whether we really like it or not. <laughs> I think. yeah yeah wow. Yeah, well, this has given me a ton to think about. I really like this idea of looking deeply into what it is about pirates that people are interested in in the first place. And to your point about, you know, okay, well, how do you sleep when the law of the land is no honor amongst thieves? What about that Jeffrey Rush line, you know? It's just more like guidelines. Yeah. You know, if you, if you kind of get that everybody's agreeing to something until they're not agreeing to it anymore it is more you do have to sleep with one eye open that's the trade-off that you make right because if you get to be free other people have to get to be free also so there is a little bit of shaky ground involved in that right but that might be the trade-off that you have to make well in a positive way you might have just sketched out another kind of genius you know, we have all these, mm-hmm. you know, uh, identified forms of learning and therefore forms of aptitude and, and capability. You know, you're good with numbers or you're good with spatial relationships or, you know, on and on. Uh, but there is, you know, and we, we know of people historically, we probably know people in our own lives that are uh, 
social geniuses in a certain way. You know, they have a gift if you if you want to put it that way. Or and maybe they've you know more often than not it seems to be something that they carry very easily, whether or not they've they've then cultivated a bit more expertise. But it's not something you can just will yourself or do a workshop in. Although I, there are some techniques that you can learn. But there is something about the, and I think that we, we used to have some intuitive societal understanding of that in our leadership programs, uh, whether they be in the military or in, in corporate life or, or at the playground level. Uh, I always thought like my playground uh, figures of leadership were, were pretty well chosen, you know? I think that they were, right. they were the, they may not have stayed that way, you know, and Bruce Spring, Springsteen may end up writing songs about what happened to, you know, that guy who was the, you know, the playground hero. Um, but there is something about leadership that we just don't want to talk about anymore. Uh, mm. And that may give us some more room to develop the pirate theme. Um, and certainly the, the discussion of William Dampier is just phenomenally interesting. The, the range of expertise uh, and, and just aspects of life that he was engaged in is an inspiring model for everyone, you know? Absolutely. And I do think that that episode will contain perhaps the key to unlock this whole thing because some stuff clicked for me that I wrote down because I want to save it uh, for that wider discussion but a lot of this just clicked for me I, I think we're, we we're on to something you know we're on to something mm -hmm. here and uh, you know just watching uh, this Errol Flynn movie last I'm reminded of how many industries a single ship of that time would have incorporated into its operation but one of the key ones which we never give any thought to anymore is rope making Think about seriously about the technology and the sociality of, of performing the industrial level almost creation of rope in terms of quantity, yeah. pre-industrial, industrial process really, an amazing thing. But I think that uh, what we were starting to do is kind of unravel a really interesting rope of ideas that goes to back to the very first things we were talking about. Um, the nature of culture, is, is that a contradiction? Is that a fundamental problem? Somewhere between that oscillation is the critical, critical practice of piracy. I would hit us up. So you, you've, you've got a range of ways to go with this of how you, you can go to uh, number five and work backwards uh, I'm going to leave it up to you but we want to get both those things well what I'll do here is I will text you my drawings oh this is great um, this is exciting because you really are pretty good at drawing I, I like your style it suits you it's uh
my conception of it, the lone monkey turns and says something to the three monkeys off to our left. And then this incenses two of the monkeys who jump after him. That's the second photo, or I guess I suppose the third photo in the series. The fourth photo is of a fight where I've drawn a kind of cartoon dust cloud of them fighting. See, this is just phenomenally interesting because every response is is really is different, and yet is you know because it's working with the same frames, you can kind of do a little bit of analysis of the differences, and I'm building up a kind of dimensional sort of calculus or geometry. Geometry is a better way to describe the uh, the responses. That's that's very interesting. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, you sent yeah, me something. Yeah. I've got okay. Let me have a look. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. And this is this is just the level of, of detail. And I'll say to Mr. It's fairly primitive. That David has really stepped, you know, mm -hmm. kept conceptually here, letting the the prompt mm -hmm. do the work, not. All right, so when I'm looking at them, uh, the, 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 the bottom one is sort of the original solo monkey I'm taking, and the others are, the, the, the others are in, in that's, the that's the last pick, in other words. Right, yeah, I'm not sure which, what order they sent you in, but the one that has two drawings is the first, okay. and then the one with the little cloud is, is, the, is the last. Okay, okay, all right. So we've got one monkey in, in frame and, and the cloud at the end. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's a very interesting starting point. So when you, you started us off with the opposition of sentry or exile, of this one monkey looking very, direct, very obviously in the opposite direction, to the other three. Yeah, kind of, a, kind of a despondent guy, you know? He's sort of looking off into the distance like he's been either rejected to being a sentry or rejected because he's an exile, right? Okay, I like that tonal uh, extrapolation uh, that, uh, of how he was feeling. That Because that, I think that is... You know, people say, well, don't anthropomorphize, you know, animals... Well, I just don't know if that. I mean, he, these are primates, for God's sakes, for starters. And I, I can tell you, why not? <laughs> looking at the photograph and having taken it, I think it's very difficult, and if not suspect, to not project oneself into the image. Everything is a Rorschach test, you know? That's the whole idea of looking at anything. Um, it, it's always about some degree of projection and, and engagement. And if there's just no, there's no way around that. We have to accept that as part of the nature of vision. Um, okay. Well, that's 
That's very interesting. I, I will say this. Do you want to know anything about... Because my, my plan was not to let you in on... Uh, the answer to this. oh no if that's your if that's your plan that's totally fine okay. I'm fine with not knowing too yeah, yeah. I think mm-hmm. I will I think I'll because I want re- listeners to to think about this themselves um, yeah because I'll put all three all, all the pictures up too so they can see what we're talking yeah about. and the starting point photograph would be fine too you know um, mm-hmm. just not what you know supposedly ended up happening because that's not what I want. That's not the conclusion that I ever want people to draw. Mm-hmm. Well, this is what really mm-hmm. happened. No, that's not right. the way to think right. of it. Um, but the exercise is, I think, a really good one. And this, again, goes to the, the power and the magic of inference. If people really think about that for a moment, it's, it's an important it's so incredibly important to our definition of, of intelligence really that we, we just often don't talk about it and we discourage it yeah. but if we think about it just as an extreme gift and focused talent and skill developed over time in speculation and tactical dreaming I think that's uh, that's the way to consider it excellent awesome well do you have a tip and a tool for us? Yeah, today? the tool. I, I've been this. This is an extension of, of all of the things that we've been discussing. You know, there's only everything connects. But I've been thinking about the notion of dialectic, uh, which in its most it does mean different things depending on you know Hegelian dialect is one thing and on and on and on. But if we take it in its uh, rhetorical uh, context of uh, developing a thesis position and then examining an antithesis position and trying to arrive at a synthesis position. You know, we've got the rule of threes and that sounds like kind of a nice balance and we sort of do that intuitively. Uh, and then the problem is how do we keep from mediocrity? How do we keep from that being a bland mush of things? It's not really a synthesis. It's just, you know, taking... Uh, the edge off, you know, that's so often what happens. So I thought, well, what, let's put all of that aside and let's go for trialectic, just for, just for starters. Mm-hmm. We'll, go, we'll start <laughs> with synthesis and we'll extrapolate. We'll use inference from there. Um, mm. But I think taking three, you know, the magic of three, greater than two and less than four, as we say, taking this as just a fundamental prism uh, lens of analysis for anything and we can do it with words and concepts take for instance the triad pageant ritual and ceremony now there are many different words I could have plugged into this you know I mean mm-hmm. festival mm-hmm. could have been plugged in it but I didn't mm-hmm. I plugged in those three because that came because I think if you start analyzing those three words how they connect how they diverge, you start to form an interesting sort of new picture. And if you are drawing inclined, you might doodle as you do that. And I think you would have a new visualization of the dynamic that is going on between those three word concepts. And it's the dynamic that we want to understand with language more fully. We're dealing currently in in just general day-to-day life with a lot of artifacts words as artifacts 
as just block building, you know? And block building is not really very satisfying in the end, and it's hopeless in terms of really uh, dealing with organic, dynamic process, and that's what life is. So language is always leaving us frustrated and kind of roped in and imprisoned when we don't need to be, but we need to see dynamic relationships, the fields of energy around language, and to have enough mm-hmm. mental energy to, to engage with that. Uh, yeah. So that's the tool. Yeah. Using starting with a trialectic approach. Don't go do a pro and con and then arrive at a solution. That's solutionism, as David was, has been pointing out in a couple of earlier episodes, and it's invariably uh, superficial and creates more problems. You know, that's the goal of yep. solutionism: is to create another problem so you can come up with another solution. And, yep. You know, pretty soon exactly. you're chasing your tail, and it's still your tail. <laughs> you know. <laughs> exactly. Solutionism is um, the major problem of our age, and how people argue with this dialectic thinking as though there is some sort of solution that they're going to come to. If it hasn't been proved completely fruitless yet. I mean, people will start to be hip to this eventually. Like, what are we even doing here? What's the, what is the solution? I'm just very skeptical of solutionism because it always seems to end in somebody going to jail or being killed. That seems to be the end result of a solution. It's most famous with the final solution, right? But the final solution was just the natural progression of solutionism. I um, Not to get too deep into the Kanye West thing, but I find it a little bit exhausting at this point because what is, what, what is the solution to, to, to his claims, right? Let's say that he's right. Let's say that there is an outsized influence of Jewish people on the, on the media. So are you going to kill them? Are you going to remove them from power? What's the... Because neither of those are ideas that I think most sane people can get behind so what's 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 your point and i think that you can just apply that to things that are far 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 less controversial than uh, anti-semitism well controversy becomes its own uh self-feeding self-sustaining sort of idea you know yeah and it, right. it may be the degeneration of the pirate spirit in in, in the modern mass uh, mm-hmm. communications mm-hmm. age that might be what it, what it's become and so now we need to have a new form of, of piratical subversion of that that looks to right. uh, you know a whole new mode of, of uh, rebellion and a whole new mode of, of reconciliation um, and mm-hmm. it gets back to that question of, of is synthesis just uh, making a kind of mush of things or is it a genuine mm-hmm. new progressive, you know, direction. Yeah, instead of looking at a particular culture as a problem that needs to be solved, you can do like William Dampier. Go explore their food and their cultures and their customs and dance with them and have fun. And more often than not, that just turns out better for everybody involved than trying to, to solve <laughs> the problem of people. Well, but okay. you can see that really, really clearly at the very, very personal, intimate level, can't you? I mean, if you see a relationship where one of the partners is actively trying to 
really change the other person. I mean, that is just not going to last, you know. No, no matter. I mean, in, I don't know. Even if the the uh, the object person just completely capitulates, um, there's the end game happens pretty quickly, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so on to the tip, which is an extension of this. Um, and it's based on a little bit of a kind of aphoristic insight I, I, that I had. Um, it occurred to me that uh, the less that one is inclined to identify in any way as a m- musician, okay, uh, the more value a little bit of exposure to musical theory is. And I think that's really interesting. I, I can understand why people who really are uh, just naturally good musicians kind of resist musical theory. I really get that. I think that when we're looking at ways to make a piece with uh, forms of order and structure, it's very handy to look at disciplines, fields, aptitudes, uh, orientations that we don't directly identify with. I think it's easier to get with that. Um, and music is kind of a softer version of, of mathematics in that way. And I think it's really, really helpful. Um, it also then made me see that what I'm doing is, in my sort of musical orientations, is kind of the analog of a semic writing. Do you know what a semic or a semic writing is, David? That's a really interesting thing which we should pursue. It's a kind of art form of abstract language. Um, meaningless it's, 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 in other words. Yes, me- meaningless. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, yeah. It's very... Yeah, it's, um, I mean, which kind of, it, 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 it's a Isn't it the guy who like idea. repeats words? Like repeating words until they lose their meaning? Like saying yes over and over again? Is that... That's all part of it. Yeah, that's it's kind of a really rich uh, minimalism of 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 writing and speech. It's a spoken word um, form. You could say that some of the beast language work of Michael McClure or Anthony Burgess falls into that. It's it's really questioning the the deep grammars, uh, not just the literal semantics of language, but semantics in a broader conceptual sense of, of, of meaning, you know, where, wherein lies mm. meaning. And I think it's, a, it's kind of ana- analogous to what some of Robert Irwin's, uh, the artist's visual work, um, Steve Reich in music, with a lot of, Pauline Oliveras, you know, a lot of interesting people trying to question the deep grammar of, of sense, order, meaning, how that, how that field of energy sort of organizes itself in mind and culture. Uh, but here's the tip, and this is based on a little bit an extension of the trielectic tool. Uh, do some inference work with yourself. And I'm going to give you an example. The premise is I live in what I think can be considered a classic American small town now very difficult to find. The weather has been gorgeous of late over the weekends. I want you now to connect a shortwave frequency handbook, a rubber-headed mallet 
and a miniature rocking chair. Remember the beautiful uh, from L'Autrement of you know the, the chance uh, appearance of a uh, a sewing uh, on a sewing machine. What, what's the one of a, of a sewing machine on a dissecting table? You know, it's this convergence of objects, which then the surrealists mm -hmm. took as their sort of motto. Um, but a shortwave frequency handbook, a rubber-headed mallet, and a miniature rocking chair. Think of the premise that I set up. What is the link? Well, you don't have to have an answer. But that is good inference training. There is a solid answer to this. And speculating on that, how that works, what might so a shortwave I'm sorry, a short a shortwave frequency handbook. Can you can you tell me a little bit about what that is? Is, is a handbook for how to operate a shortwave frequency it, it's, radio? It, it's just uh, I, I could have said uh, 1957 uh, as the date. So it was just something that for ham radio operators, it was the uh, kind of telephone book of, of that time. Oh, interesting, interesting. Let me think about that. That's too interesting to let go, but I don't know right now. Well, um, that's fair enough like to think because about it. it's an interesting question. Now, I think that is, I mean, there, the, the answer is beautifully simple. There does happen to be an answer in my mind, at least at this point. But there are potentially, like David's drawings of the monkeys, there are potentially, you know, any number of answers and no one, you know, ossified, calcified, uh, single answer. But... A little bit of thinking like this, these kinds of thought exercises really strengthen uh, fluidity of mind. Strengthening fluidity is a, is a lovely idea, I think. You know, it's not. I think so. Not yeah. getting solid. Yeah, you need to get more. Uh, you know, there are five states of matter. Plasma is probably the most interesting, and we got to get more plasmatic minded. You know. Do they do they work together, or is there just a conceptual link between the three of them? I think it would be more the latter, and we could extend okay. that to, uh, well, a, a matrix in space and time. Yeah. Okay. Okay, it's starting, starting to come together, but it's not there yet. I don't want to. Keep I will you give long, you a hint. It, I think the fact that this occurred in my uh, consciousness and awareness uh, is linked to something uh, that you discussed in an earlier episode from your immediate life. I don't know if that's a good enough hint or not. That's what hints are. <laughs> <laughs> to hint well is a really, that's a beautiful art form, isn't it? No one ever, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you avoid yeah. being, you know, a tease? Uh, but something, uh -huh. you know, kind of apt, a non-target, but not the target. I'm going to call you at 2 a.m. on <laughs> Thursday, and I've got it, got it. But I would, I, yeah, unless unless you, you wanted to go ahead and, and tell us, but if not, that's totally fine, too, because I'm having fun Okay, no, I, I didn't tell you about the monkeys, so I will tell you about this one. I'll change it up. Okay, and, and all right, it. okay. Okay, so... The, the key in the prompt were the, it was the idea of, of the classic small town and gorgeous weekend weather 
you know, beautiful mm -hmm. autumn weather, uh, and three odd items. So the link is just this epidemic of garage sales, yard sales, and estate sales that are happening at this time. And you had mm -hmm. mentioned earlier mm -hmm. uh, hitting your first yeah. big estate sale with that experience. Mm -hmm. So right. that had kind of stuck okay. in my mind. I thought, ah, okay, there's, there's sort of a pattern here. There's a kind of, um, it's the time of year for these things. Because where I live, it's too hot in the summer for them, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But this has been perfect. And for whatever reason, there are a lot of, lot, have been a lot of them. So. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, I was thinking way too, I was thinking about, you know, sound. And I was picturing the miniature rocking chair rigged up with the rubber mallet to strike a device that would create a frequency that you'd need the handbook to. <laughs> I was going way too way too deep into it but I, I do like that i do like that every once in a while it's good to zig instead of zag and i was i was zigging on the weirdo frequency and it's much simpler than zigging that. It's like, and oh, zagging are... is so important and in addition to being fun and its own explanation mm -hmm. you know, it justifies itself uh it's a beautiful way of learning about our associated patterns because yeah. It's like one of the, the joys of stage magic is that people can learn as much about their minds from the distractions and what fools them as when they see through a trick, you know? It, mm -hmm. You really do mm -hmm. learn a lot of, from, from what distracts you. If you, can, if you can be aware of it, you know, that's the tricky part. How do you get any awareness of what's distracting you, you know? And if you can do that, you start to get some real glimpses of how your whole mechanism works in terms of perception and, and cognition and memory, you know? Yeah, I learned that I am very distracted by sales techniques of the first hit always being free. I was in a gas station the other day, and uh, there was free lemon Bud Lights that was just a setup there. They were like, hey, do you want to try the lemon Bud Light? And I said no. And they were like, but it's but it's free. And that's my trigger. Well, if, I mean, if it's free, then but you know, as soon as you take a sip of that lemon Bud Light, they're going to say, and by the way, here's a coupon if you want. And for a limited time, well, and before you know it, I'm walking out with a case of 12 lemon Bud Lights that I probably don't even want. So that's what that's what gets me. That's the... The magic trick that gets me every time the, the free for the free one week trial of this subscription service classic That's classic so technique interesting you know like a, a market research professional would not have predicted that would not have inferred that or speculated that about you uh they would say mm -hmm. no no you know david's you know not going to be fooled by that but i think that's mm -hmm. really self-aware is that oftentimes Whatever we think of ourselves, whatever level we think we're working on, we're probably very susceptible to, to many levels below us that, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, so now it's just, I just have a principle in place of no free trials of anything. I just simply pay for everything that I want. <laughs> and, that, and that solves it, because then you're never really stuck. A free week, but then seven ninety nine a month... 
Okay, so 8 times 12, that's $96 for a year. What if I just pay the $10 for a one-time use, which is all I'm going to do it for anyway? Anyway, sorry, I'm digressing way too much. But yeah, that is my that is my weak point. That's the Well, I think trying to hack those personal systems is good psychic defense. And I think it's it's a way of thinking of a practical personal piracy, you know? Mm -hmm. Whatever you can do, and only you can do it because only you're aware of what the triggers are. But if we could all do that in our own lives, I think we would feel a lot less disempowered. I don't know if we'd feel, you know, in control. I think that's kind of, that's the problem, that, you know, that word. But we would certainly feel more fluid, you know, more mm -hmm. agile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Have you been dreaming? You know, I have. It's interesting. I, I Last night was... Uh, a fairly um, coherent and vivid dream. After, um, I think I've been having pretty richly uh, decorated dreams, but they just haven't survived waking up up to last night. And uh, it was based on um, a real person, a, a former student of mine, who I'm I'm kind of aware of. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of the direction that she's gone in. So I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm disposed well toward her, both in the past and what I know of kind of where she's at now, professionally anyway. Um, but I, I met up with her, and uh, so she was a student a while back, and she was a mature age student. So the age difference really is not as dramatic or, or out of the question. Um, Certainly, I, you know, the, the, the power relationship of teacher and student uh, made everything sort of, you know, uh, very straightforward back in the day in, in real teaching, real life terms. But in the dream, uh, we hooked up. And mm -hmm. it was a really uh, quite a beautiful short term, uh, well, it's like the pirate thing inherently short-term perhaps the pirate utopian idea because it was such a powerful communion of the lust aspect of sex and the romance aspect of, of love that I it was like that it was so poignant there was a kind of a rinsed window you know, early morning, quiet street kind of sorrow to it, you know? As if I'd, I'd not only glimpsed the ideal, I'd, I'd really embraced it and, and had a moment of, of holding it and being it. And I woke up with this little flicker in my mind of you know, well, why isn't real life like that dream? And the flicker, which was sort of anxiety creating, but I think had a lot, has a lot of truth in it, was the phrase, what if it's a failure of nerve? Hmm. And I woke up on that note of thinking, oh, you know, what if it's not enough piratical, 
courage, so to speak, to make that dream sense more the, the, the mood and the tone of so-called waking life. It does take nerve, doesn't it? I Even to just say things that you think the way that you think them takes a little bit of nerve. I think we don't like the idea that. of anything that takes nerve. I think that we're we're so afraid of the notion of courage. We can't talk about it anymore. Well, because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to be courageous. It doesn't That's one of the when you think of courage, you think of a big proud I, don't, I always think of a lion, which is funny because in popular culture sense we have the cowardly lion, yeah. but I think of courage which was that that was the joke back then, right? Is that he was a cowardly lion. But I think of a like a big cool lion standing on like pride rock in the lion king or something so we think that if we're courageous we'll feel great all the time but being courageous in practical mundane day-to-day terms your stomach hurts you feel like you feel adrenaline you feel energy going through you you have to confront things it's not inherently fun for most people anyway to confront things, but that's really what cur- courage is. It's being uncomfortable all the time. <laughs> Sleeping on the floor. By the way, well actually it's not by the way, but whatever. Why does poignant have the G where, where it is? What's with the G in poignant? Do you know? Uh, it's from the French. It's like, you know, poignard. You know, it's, um, okay. it doesn't really okay. answer your question. There, you know, the whole notion of silent letters is completely bizarre. You know, it, I mentioned that in the textbook, my textbook. Um, it's it's a really interesting example of where, you know, a writerly focus and a kind of reading, thinking, you know, language oriented focus can really help you open up other channels of imagination because you start asking those mm-hmm. questions. You know, and there are so right. many weird examples of silent letters, and we, you know, knife, you know, on and on and on. We just we take mm-hmm. them all for granted, and every time we we take something for granted, there's a little kind of barnacle-like thing that affixes to us, and we become a little bit less fluid, a little bit less gymnastic in spirit. You know. Mm-hmm. Just simple things like, wait, why why does it look like that? I'm One of my flashcard sets is Japanese kanji. There are 20,000 kanji characters. Uh, they get them from Chinese and adopted them over in Japan. And there's three types of written language. There's hiragana, which is the alphabet for Japanese words. There's katakana, which is the alphabet for foreign words. And then there's kanji, which are individual symbols that all simply mean a word. And you just have to memorize them. There's no way around it. And I thought, that's really kind of fascinating because English is similar in that way. There's no, there's no traceable reason for the K and knife, as far as I know. Or it's something, perhaps, that etymologists would argue over. You just memorize it. But what if... What if you did start thinking about it? Because one tutor who I was I was watching YouTube videos on kanji, and he says, you know, when you look at them, you can, if you study them, you can see that they're 
in some ways very abstract, but some of them are much more concrete. They're pictures. They're, they're pictures of something happening, and they're composites of words that have Sigils. been sigilized. Yeah, yeah sigil, ex that's the exact word, yep. Uh, sigilized together. So, I don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's inter like just looking at a word and thinking, huh, what's, what's the deal with it? Why don't we use Y in pirate anymore? That looks better anyway. So, well, these are the kinds of questions, as simple and focused as they sound in terms of, of language, they're, they're deeply important to how uh, we have any hope of, of either unraveling or expanding the human mind and, and the larger capability of, of human consciousness, because language is so fundamental to how the mind is structured and how society is structured. Uh, that when we start to sort of peel back some layers or just pull at some, some string, pull at some of the, the yarn there and, and try to unravel it, uh, we find that we're, we're, you know, it's kind of like reverse labyrinth work. You know, instead of keeping the thread going behind us, we're, we're kind of following, you know, and, and leading it yeah. forward in a kind of weird and weird yeah. sort of way, which maybe is appropriate to the complexity of, of the subject. But there's, there's a lot to be asked about those really seemingly basic questions. And when you think about it, I think this is a great way to, to wind up, that you could say that all of reality is idiomatic. You know, mm -hmm. and the problem mm -hmm. is, how do you keep dynamic and fluid and capable of moving forward without prejudging, preempting, projecting your idiomatic understanding where you don't really have it? You know, that's mm -hmm. the trick. <laughs>